1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, I live for bubbles. I know you do. <laughs> Anyone who has spent more than 12 minutes with me has seen me with a carbonated beverage of some kind in my hand. Yep. Those are the rules. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, I have been a, uh, this is not an endorsement, but I sure have, you know, paid a lot of their bills, I'm sure. I've been a Diet Coke drinker literally since I was nine. Mm -hmm. I know that's unhealthy and your parents would blanch. But uh, that's just what happened. But lately I have at my doctor's suggestion trying to ease off of the colas and I'm drinking more sparkling water to substitute because I do like bubbles a whole lot and that's a work in progress. Uh, But it did start to make me wonder when and how we started adding bubbles to drinks because I'm not the only person I know that's addicted to the bubbles. Mm -hmm. Um, So today we're going to talk about that, which means it is largely an episode about Jakob Schweppe uh, and some other dudes because everybody wanted to replicate natural effervescence, particularly in the 18th century. There was a lot of excitement in the scientific community about whether or not they could do it. So we also have a note on names because as I mentioned, the guy we're talking about most today is Jakob Schweppe. There's no S on the end of that name. The company today that you would recognize is Schweppes with an S and there's no apostrophe. We'll talk a little bit about that transition, Um, although it's not super well-documented when it became one versus the other, but just so you're not confused about why sometimes we might make an S sound and sometimes not.
0: (laughs) So first, we're just gonna level set a little bit about how different kinds of bubbly water are classified because they're gonna come up throughout the episode. I think some folks use some of these terms almost interchangeably.
1: Oh, they do, and I will though, talk about that. Yeah, uh,
0: These are all considered carbonated waters, but the manner in which they become carbonated and what other things you might find in them that defines the actual different types. So there's sparkling water, This is naturally carbonated water. It comes from a spring or a well in which gases are introduced into the water. Sodium, magnesium, and calcium are usually naturally occurring in this water. The amounts can really vary depending on the source, which is why different sparkling waters can taste slightly different from one another.
1: Yes, even if they are unflavored, but we'll talk about flavors.
0: (laughs) So. Seltzer starts with uncarbonated water. It gets the carbonation from the manufacturing process. It can get flavoring, but it doesn't have that mineral content that sparkling water does. Uh, Club soda or soda water is also carbonated in processing, but also has minerals, including sodium, added. And then there's tonic water, I don't know if anybody is using tonic water to generically (laughs) mean carbonated water. Tonic water is carbonated in processing. It has quinine and other ingredients added to it, including sugar or maybe some other sweetener. I see a lot of, like,
1: sugar-free tonic water. Sugar-free tonic
0: water. I think I've seen, like, an agave-sweetened tonic water.
1: Yeah, And also as a a little caveat here, these terms are modern. They were not all in play when early beverage carbonation was being developed, but we wanted to include this because it helps to understand the variations as we talk through some of it. And in most cases, we are going to use the modern definitions just for clarity. Uh, So that's why we gave you that little rundown. I have thoughts. You might be having them too. We'll talk about them on Friday.
0: (laughs) Sure. So to talk about Schweppes, First, we have to talk about Joseph Priestley and a handful of other men because their work inspired Shveppa's experiments with gases and water. So Joseph Priestley was born in Yorkshire, England in 1733. His family worked in the wool business making fabric. Joseph became a dissenting minister, meaning that he did not align with the doctrines of the Church of England. Uh, Priestley is a pretty interesting guy, maybe a podcast subject in the future.
1: Yeah, he has a a lot of interesting stuff both from a religious perspective and a philosophical perspective and scientific Uh, because he was also very interested in science. He believed in the changing nature of science, that it is forever evolving as we learn new things and apply that knowledge to our scientific thinking. He wrote books and papers on science. He was a member of the Royal Society of London. And starting in the 1760s, Priestley, like a lot of other science-minded people of his day worked on experiments involving the chemistry of gases, and one of his early efforts was adding carbonation to water. So at the time, sparkling water from natural sources was already popular, and it was seen as helpful. Uh, I didn't trace it back to check, but I did see some people mentioning that this is really, like, kind of the origin of that phrasing of take the waters, which is like, Mm -hmm. go to somewhere where there is a natural spring to drink the bubbly water because it is naturally good for you. Uh, Priestley was among the many scientists at the time wondering if they could supply bubbly water by uh, increasing its availability by artificially adding the bubbles. So Priestley took
0: a position as a minister in Leeds. When he did that, he lived next to a brewery and was scientifically curious about the vapors that the brewery gave off. He eventually came to the determination that what he called fixed air, which gave beer its bubbles, was the same thing that made some spring waters bubbly. So today, beer can be made extra bubbly through forced carbonation That's the addition of carbon dioxide to the beer while it's in a sealed container. But in Priestley's time, the bubbles only came from the fermentation process. Naturally carbonated water, so what we would classify today as sparkling water, gets its bubbles from volcanic gases that dissolve into natural water springs. So the fixed air concept that Priestley was describing had more to do with the water being infused with air in a a pressurized situation than, like, the source of the water.
1: Yeah, it wasn't like he had said, like, this one kind of air is fixed air, although he did figure out that carbon dioxide was the way to do it. The first test that Priestley did was really simple. He left saucers of water out overnight above areas where the brewery vapors rose up through the air and then reported that he found bubbles. He wrote in his findings, quote, I generally found the next morning that the water had acquired a very sensible and pleasant impregnation, and it was with peculiar satisfaction that I first drank this water, which I believe was the first of its kind that had ever been tasted by man. And from there, he started working on building a mechanism that could more effectively impregnate water with bubbles. Priestley published a
0: book on the method he devised to add carbonation to water in 1772, this was titled Directions for Impregnating Water with Fixed Air in order to communicate to it the peculiar spirit and virtues of Pyrmont water and other mineral waters of a similar nature. In the beginning of the direction segment of the book, he opens with, quote, "...if water be only in contact with fixed air, it will begin to imbibe it, but the mixture is greatly accelerated by agitation, which is continually bringing fresh particles of air and water into contact." All that is necessary, therefore, to make this process expeditious and effectual is first to procure a sufficient quantity of this fixed air and then to contrive a method by which the air and water may be strongly agitated in the same vessel without any danger of admitting the common air to them. And this is easily done by first filling any vessel with water and introducing the fixed air to it while it stands inverted in another vessel of water. That every part of the process may be as intelligible as possible, even to those who have no previous knowledge of the subject, I shall describe it very minutely, subjoining several remarks and observations relating to varieties in the process and other things of a miscellaneous nature.
1: This book is a pretty fun read, but it is one of those things where, um... The spellings are a little different, and a lot of the S's are the F, so you really have to like be ready for some gymnastics to autocorrect as you go, uh, but it is a fun read. He gives a, a pretty basic run-through of the process before delving into the more finessed aspects of the science. Uh, as you you'll see in his method, there is some room for error here. He describes it this way. Quote, take a glass vessel with a pretty narrow neck and having filled it with water, lay a slip of clean paper or thin pasteboard upon it. Then, if they be pressed close together, the vessel may be turned upside down without danger of admitting any, or however much, common air into it. And when it is thus inverted, it must be placed in another vessel in the form of a bowl or basin with a little water in it, so much as to permit the slip of paper or pasteboard to be withdrawn and the end of the pipe C to be introduced. So that pipe C he mentions is essentially like a flexible tube. It was attached at the other end to an animal bladder, usually a pig bladder, and that bladder was connected to a bottle that contained chalk and a small amount of water. And so to create his fixed air that would be imbibed, as Priestley put it, into the water in the first bottle, his method required the addition of sulfuric acid to that second bottle, which was then sealed with a cork and shaken. And that would fill the bladder with gas, CO2, and then the bladder could be compressed to direct the air into the first bottle. That would also displace some of the water it initially contained into the bowl it was sitting in. And then that bottle needed a good shake to integrate the gas and water. Ta-da, you've made carbonated water.
0: One of the earliest commercially available carbonated beverages came out of this work very early in the process, that was a drink that one of Priestley's friends made called Mr. Bewley's Julep or Mr. Bewley's Mephitic Julep. Richard Bewley was an apothecary in Great Massingham, Norfolk, and introduced his carbonated water in 1767 or 1768. Accounts vary a little bit. Building on the work of Bewley, another apothecary, Thomas Henry, introduced his own fizzy beverage using the same apparatus Priestley had developed. His product was an imitation mineral water that he touted for its
1: medicinal qualities. Yeah, it even had like a dosage uh, that he recommended. We're going to talk about some criticisms of Priestley's design after we first pause for a sponsor break. Privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Even though Priestley's design for imparting carbonation worked, that process and setup that we described wasn't exactly something you could do on a large scale. There were quite a few critics of it, because in addition to being unwieldy and involving, you know, the flipping of a bottle with a piece of paper to close it, (laughs) that animal bladder was really an issue for people. It gave the water, according to critics, a faint taste of urine. Nobody wants that. Mm -mm. Uh, One of those critics was a doctor from Scotland named John Mervyn Newth. And this entire idea of carbonating water had gotten really, really popular. And Newth, like others, was in contact with Priestley and also Benjamin Franklin. There are a lot of, if you, I would love for someone to like do a chart where they track out all of the letters passing between various people in the science community at this time and them all talking about carbonation. Uh, But Newth wanted to figure out a way to get rid of that bladder section of the apparatus and make it a little bit cleaner. In 1774, he read a paper to the Royal Society titled The Description of an Apparatus for Impregnating Water with Fixed Air. And this paper talks through his design and also Nuth's real motivation, which was studying how the effervesced water might have medicinal benefit.
0: Nuth's apparatus used all glass components, which had airtight seals connecting them. There were three chambers stacked one on top of the other, The bottom vessel was for the chemicals that would react to create CO2. The middle vessel was for the water that was being carbonated. And the top vessel was for the water that was displaced from that middle vessel during the process. Both Priestley's design and Newth's required the water to be processed multiple times to achieve full carbonation. But the Newth apparatus could be separated into the component pieces for this agitation step. While Priestley had initially bristled at Newth's criticisms, he really did acknowledge the improvement his device offered over the initial design. Additionally, one of Priestley's friends, John Wurltier, further improved the design by pressurizing it, and Newth's device was easy enough to use that people could have one in their homes. A lot of wealthy people purchased them hoping to get the benefit of sparkling water without having to go on holiday for it or without having it brought to
1: them by the bottle. And that brings us to Johann Jakob Schweppe, who was born in Witzenhausen, Germany in 1740. So that community was largely agricultural, but even as a boy, Jakob was believed by his parents to be cut out for something very different from farming. According to the official account of the Schweppes Company, which is uh, quite a fun book written by Douglas Simmons in 1983, a traveling tinker offered to take Jakob under his wing as an apprentice, and Jakob's father, Conrad, agreed to that idea. But the tinker recognized that Jakob's natural talents for working with his hands exceeded anything he was going to be called to do as a handyman. So he suggested to the Schweppes that Jakob should instead be sent to apprentice with a silversmith. But the silversmith also thought that the work he could give Jakob would be kind of less than the boy was capable of. And the next recommendation was that he apprentice under a jeweler. And that, finally, was a pretty great fit. By 1765,
0: Jacob Schweppe was working as a jeweler and a watchmaker in Geneva, Switzerland. He married two years later to Eleonore Roger and became a citizen of Geneva the year after that. He worked under a jeweler named Jean-Louis Dunant and then formed a firm with Dunant's son under the name Dunant and Schweppe. Jacob handled most of the day-to-day business and Dunant provided the capital. Although he and Eleonora had nine children, only one of them survived to adulthood.
1: That was their daughter, Nicolard, who went by Colette, outlived both of her parents. And they were a very, very close family. As an adult already well into his horology career, Schweppe started reading the writing of Joseph Priestley and the other men who had been working on carbonation, because he considered himself like an amateur scientist. And it's estimated that Schweppe started his own experiments with bubbles at least by 1780, very possibly earlier than that. He, like so many others, was trying to build on previous devices to increase effectiveness, ease, and the quality of the product they produced. And he got pretty good at it, although he seems to have kept the details of his mechanism pretty secret. There are a lot of times you'll read about throughout his career where it's like, oh, when he went to this new place, he built uh, boxes around all of his devices. So even the people that worked there didn't know what what actually like made them work unless they had to know. Uh, so <laughs> he was smart enough to be secretive. But what he did do was share the carbonated water he created because He was making far more of it than his household could consume, and he already had a perfectly fine job and income. First, he started offering it
0: to doctors as something they could give to their poor patients who couldn't afford to buy spring water. That might not have cured anybody of anything, but at least people had a way to stay hydrated. As he continued to refine his method of carbonation, he also started offering water to Geneva's middle and upper classes, He made a nice living for himself in his watchmaking business, so he wasn't charging for this water. He was just giving out free carbonated water all the time. That made people a little wary. It was just odd to have somebody giving away this product that was in demand. So soon he started charging for it, and then he realized he was doing well enough that he could just change careers He established J. Schweppe & Company and started selling carbonated water full-time by the end of 1783.
1: And this is one of those instances in history where the seemingly unrelated career knowledge that an inventor possessed, in his case, being a jeweler and watchmaker, proved to be the key to unlocking a problem that others had been grappling with a little bit. Because he understood so innately how things like clockwork machinery functioned, he was able to apply some of that knowledge to create a carbonation device that, like Priestley and Nooth, used the reaction of chalk and sulfuric acid to create carbon dioxide. But Schweppa's mechanism, which got the nickname of the Geneva system, or sometimes you'll see it called the Geneva apparatus, was automated with a mechanical pump to move air into the water chamber and an agitator. So there no longer had to be multiple rounds of manual agitation of the water and CO2 mixture. So instead of taking your thing apart and standing there shaking it, the pumps and the agitator would do all of that for you. This was of course more efficient and it also meant that it was a lot easier to scale his device up to make much more carbonated water much faster with better results than any previous version.
0: By the 1780s, Jacob's water enterprise had gone from just dabbling in experiments with carbonation to being a substantial company. He was expanding rapidly and he needed to hand over some of the operation to someone else to manage. This did not go well. He selected a friend for the job who immediately hired an engineer to replicate the Geneva system, hoping to start his own competing business. But the engineer who did so made a copy for himself while making an inferior device for this unscrupulous manager.
1: When all of this came to light, that everybody was essentially trying to steal his ideas, uh, Schweppe made the perhaps surprising, but ultimately kind of wise decision, to salvage the situation by going into business with that engineer who clearly understood how the device worked. That was a man named Nicholas Paul. He also went into business as part of this with other men. They brought other men into the firm. So Jacques Paul, who was Nicholas's father, they took on another partner, a pharmacist named Henry Albert Gossa, and they formed a company called Scheppa, Paul, and Gossa. On occasion, uh, if you're reading up on this, Nicholas Paul is the one who's credited with adding the compression pump to the Geneva system, but that seems incorrect based on the timeline of when Schweppe was expanding before they made this deal. That
0: partnership began in 1790. The following year, Schweppe moved from Geneva to England, leaving production of carbonated water to his partners while he tried to expand the market. This was precipitated in a part by a man named William Belcom, who was an English doctor living in Geneva when Schweppe had taken on partners. It was decided that Belcom would help with the effort to move into the British market by using his contacts in the medical profession there to, like, drum up interest in the product. The company planned to send samples to various doctors, both in England and Paris, and Schweppe would follow and set up a factory— This seems to have been a time of some tension and a power struggle among the partners and the manner in which the British plan was laid out in paperwork looks like Schweppe was sort of put at a disadvantage. As in, if Goss and Paul decided it wasn't working, it was their call and Svěpa would not have his living expenses in London covered anymore if that kind of decision was made.
1: And we'll see... That, that becomes an issue. Uh, coming up, we're going to see how things went in London. Spoiler alert, not great initially. Uh, we'll talk about it after we hear from the sponsors who keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Schweppe left Geneva at the end of 1791 and he arrived in London just after the new year of 1792 and started to get their new factory up and running at 141 Drury Lane. It was kind of a bad neighborhood at the time. London already had an established mineral water trade and bubbly water was popular there. It wasn't as though Jakob Schweppe was arriving to introduce a new concept. And the first six months were very rough. Jakob additionally just really missed his family. He suggested to his partners that summer, so after he had been there five or six months, that they should either shutter the London factory entirely or be prepared to weather another seven or eight months of difficulty before expecting any kind of success. I think to his surprise, that's speculation, but it seems like uh, he was a little surprised, they decided to keep going. And arrangements were made for Sheppa's daughter, Colette, to travel to England so that he would not be alone. But in the meantime, sales in Geneva started to falter, and soon they just wanted Sheppa to come home and fix it. He did
0: not go home, though. He felt as though they were backing out on the agreement to give the British plan until the spring to see if it would work, He wrote and basically said he'd be happy to sever ties and run the entire company himself. As all of this was playing out, France declared war on Britain on February 1st, 1793 in response to Britain expelling the French ambassador when King Louis XVI was executed on January 21st. This put Schweppe in an odd and precarious position because all foreigners who had arrived in Britain in the preceding year were ordered to leave. Technically, he had been there a few weeks longer than the cutoff would have been, but he was still worried. He wrote a letter to the British government explaining that he had been working very hard to establish a factory and that he thought it would ultimately benefit the country for him to be there, so he stayed.
1: Yeah, he also had a number of people that he knew write uh, letters on his behalf that were kind of like, no, no, he's this is a good thing. Uh, during this tense time... Schweppe definitely seemed to be operating under the impression that the company was now his alone and that his partners had completely backed out. But in Geneva, they still believed that they were involved. Uh, And this caused disagreements, which escalated to a point where Schweppe hired an attorney friend of his to just settle the situation, cut it all apart. And it ended up in a scenario where Schweppe let his partners have the Geneva operation and he stayed in London operating once again under the name J. Schweppa & Company. Now, this sounds, given how things had been going, like a bad decision, but his decision was ultimately the right one. Paul and Gossa really did not understand the business the way Schweppe did, and the Geneva factory soon went under as Paul and Gossa bickered and decided that they would just go their separate ways. They each kind of made an effort to get into doing their own um, bubbling water companies that did not work out. And conversely, things started rapidly picking up in Britain.
0: Colette was still just a teenager at this point and was helping her father run everything. Schweppe couldn't afford to pay a full staff. He was a jack-of-all-trades, handling the invoicing and accounts management as well as the overall management of the operation. He also trained Colette how to do everything in case something happened to him. This was a smaller operation than he had left behind in Geneva, but it was still a lot. He also decided to move to a different part of London and relocated everything first to King Street, Holborn, and then again to 11 Margaret Street, Westminster. Things may have sputtered out had it not been for the fact that Erasmus Darwin made a recommendation of using Schweppe's seltzer water to treat bladder stones in his 1796 book, Zoonomia. Other prominent doctors started recommending it, and soon, Sveppa saw a significant uptick in business.
1: At this point, he also started running advertisements. So prior to this, Dr. Belcom, who had been their advisor in the British market, had told them that running ads there without Dr. Endorsements in Britain was just gonna give him a really bad reputation. So once he had those, those endorsements, he started listing out his offerings in advertisements to readers. Three, acidulous soda waters, acidulous Rochelle salt water, seltzer water, spa water, Piermont Water, if you're wondering what Piermont Water is, it is just named after a spring called Piermont, which is where a lot of sparkling water came from. Uh, Even though he had endorsements from the leading physicians of the day, he still had to pay a patent medicine tax on these products. But also what was going on that's interesting is in the next few years, the term soda water actually came into existence. So then he was also selling that.
0: But though Schweppe was finally achieving his goal in the carbonated water business in Britain, he was getting tired. He had not seen his wife, Eleonora, since he left Geneva, and she died in 1796, while they had still not been able to see one another because of the ongoing conflict in Europe. As the 18th century came to a close, Jakob Schweppe wanted to spend time with his daughter away from work, so in May of 1798, he sold the controlling interest in the company to three businessmen from the island of Jersey, which is part of the Channel Islands. Those men were F.C. Lousen, H.W. Lousen, and R.C.G. Brohier. An eighth of the company was still owned by Jacob, and an eighth was put in Colette's name. Jacob and Colette remained in their residence attached to the Margaret Street factory, and the company was still Schweppe & Company. In this instance, unlike the situation with the Geneva factory, Schweppe and his daughter trained the new owners on how to run the business successfully. They also had a provision in the agreement that outlined the sale of the company that in 1799, half the interest that Jacob and Colette still had would be handed over to another man, Stephen de And then they would step away from the business entirely and move back to Geneva.
1: Colette married several years later in 1806 to Henri-Louis Malnoir, and the couple lived in Geneva, so they stayed close to Jacob. Jacob and Colette both went to Germany in 1814 so Schweppe could visit his childhood home. Once back in Geneva, he led a very active life. He was still close with his daughter, he tended his beloved peach trees, he visited with friends, and he continued to study various scientific ideas as his whims desired. He died at the age of 80, and Colette was his sole inheritor. After Jakob Schweppe sold his interest
0: in the company, the new owners of J. Schweppe & Company expanded into the U.S. market, and this was actually a pretty easy sell in North America. There was a very real desire in the early 1800s to replicate the culture of Europe on many people's parts, and Schweppe had the benefit of popularity in Europe to use as marketing directly to that desire.
1: Yeah, it's like, this is the most popular sparkling beverage in London. Don't you want to buy it? Yeah. Um, As demand for carbonated water grew in North America, uh, Schweppe, which I don't know when they started pronouncing it with the more American pronunciation of Schwepp, But this company soon learned how difficult it could be to transport carbonated water long distances. If you've ever shaken up a bottle of anything carbonated, you understand this. Uh, This problem was solved by some degree by simply building more factories in more places. The business grew again in 1831 when Schwepp's Indian tonic water was introduced to capitalize on the continually growing health goods market, We've mentioned before in the show that quinine has been used to treat malaria for a long time, and because there's quinine in tonic water and there was in the new Schweppes tonic water, it was quickly adopted by the British Empire to be shipped to all of the places the British Empire was colonizing where malaria was an issue. So this was a huge, huge contract.
0: It's a huge contract. Also, (laughs) the amount of quinine in tonic water, not necessarily enough to help with the malaria. They just, didn't just, know
1: that. They just, just right. wanted more of it. <laughs> just as a note.
0: <laughs> the company had been sold in 1824. In 1834, it was bought again, this time by John Kemp Welch and William Evel. It appears that this is when the name started to shift away from Schwepp and Company to Schwepp's with the apostrophe that apostrophe was eventually dropped. Two years later, in 1836, the J. Schweppe & Company name was still used on the document that established that the company was the official purveyor of soda water to the royal family. That's a status that was reiterated by Queen Victoria the following year when she took the throne. This essentially cemented its success because everybody wanted to drink what the queen drank. This was also selected as the official drink of the 1851 Great Expo that took place in Paxton's Crystal Palace. Talked about that on the show before. You can still find a stylized image of the fountain from that expo. Uh, on the Schweppes logo today, some product cans have a more detailed
1: illustration of the fountain as the background. Yeah, that's uh, still a huge part of their their visual graphic identity. The popularity of carbonated waters eventually, of course, led to the addition of flavored syrups to create new sodas and then colas, and they can all trace their roots back to the 18th century inventions of a handful of innovators.
0: Today, ownership of Schweppes is a lot more complicated than any partnership that Jakob Schweppe could have ever conceived. The brand overall is held by Centauri Holdings Limited subsidiary, Uh, known as Schweppes International Limited. Several different companies, including Coca-Cola, own the brand in various territories. The company's offerings now include a variety of flavors of ginger ale, a lot of sparkling water flavors, club soda, and tonic water.
1: And now the aisle of carbonated beverages at most U.S. grocery stores rivals the size of entire groceries in various other countries.
0: I have a question. Uh, Yeah. Are the whole lot of sparkling water flavors sparkling water or seltzer?
1: We're going to talk about that behind the scenes. All right. all right, Good to know. Because I, too, was like, rabbit hole, rabbit hole. How (laughs) does this work? I went down a rabbit hole this morning.
0: Even though you had written the thing out and sent it to me, I was like, really? And I was i got very
1: fixated on what was what yes me too i found myself um reading many things and being like that's incorrect you're you're (laughs) miss you're misnaming it um but right now i will talk about fun listener mail yeah and this is from our listener foster and who wrote to us about very old animals Foster writes greetings, Tracy V and Holly. My wife and I have been listening for many years now, and I've written a few times. I write you today to express our surprise that you didn't mention the Greenland shark in your recent episode, very old animals. We postulated perhaps the historical stories surrounding the other animals you covered were just more interesting than anything related to Greenland sharks. But we also agreed that your excellent research skills could surely find some historical curiosity about a creature that's believed to be capable of living over 500 years. Uh, I was just reading up to refresh my memory, and while I knew we believed they don't reach sexual maturity until 100 years old, I did not recall knowing they had a gestation period of 8 to 18 years. Can you imagine? If, on the off chance, you were unaware of this very long-lived creature, I hope you enjoy learning about it. And if, as we suspect, you couldn't find any interesting historical stories about it, we'd love to hear about that as well, perhaps on the episodes behind the scenes. Uh, Regardless, the true reason for writing you is, of course, to share photos of our two new cats, Sanjay, who is 2.5 years old and an orange tabby, and Georgie, a a uh, year-and-a-half-year-old Tortoise shell. after having lost our previous cat, Madeline, to old age last year. Our new cat friends both came from the local shelter, where my wife has been volunteering on the cat side every Sunday for the last five years. She finally got to take cats home. I'm sure you can understand for her, all the litter box cleaning, cat bathes, and pill-popping is easy compared to not being able to take home at least one cat a week. Yes, I fully understand this. Uh, As you'll see from the photos, Sanjay likes to sleep like a passed-out drunkard, and Georgie loves to climb. Georgie loves showing off how she can climb Our ladder, even leaning nearly vertical against a wall. They both look forward to going outside on harnesses every night after dinner, especially Sanjay, who is slowly getting close to walking around the block, much like a cautious dog. Thanks so much for your podcast. Keep living your best lives. Cheers, Foster. Okay, these cats are so stinking cute, and Mm -hmm. I 100% understand this problem um and also thank you to your wife for volunteering to take care of kitties and it, it is it's so hard not to just um shove one in your pocket and run um I you exactly nailed it why we didn't talk about the greenland shark there aren't a lot of uh interesting stories other than this is very old and cool which is great and uh, i think we
0: did say that in the behind the scenes i
1: think didn't we i don't think so I, i've I think we mentioned sharks, but not specifically Greenland sharks. Okay.
0: Somehow I thought we specifically <laughs> mentioned this in the behind the scenes. Maybe. Now I don't
1: remember. Um, but yeah, so that's that's why you're exactly right. I find them fascinating. I love sharks. Um, and I was lucky enough to work with sharks some when I was volunteering at the aquarium, um, which was just wild and interesting and they're an animal that we as much as we know about them we don't know much about them because like in terms of behavioral clues they don't always tell us what's going on with them in ways that we understand so there's still a lot of work being done on figuring out like how sharks present Things like illnesses or just, like, stress. Uh, So it's pretty fascinating. Shark physiology is fascinating. I love sharks. Uh, But (laughs) as you said, because we don't have that level of, like, interactivity with sharks very often, we don't have a lot of good stories about their behavior. Uh, So that's the scoop with sharks. But if you want to write to us and send us kitty pictures or talk about your favorite very old animal... Please do. Uh, You can do that at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not subscribed to the podcast, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.